Welcome to On Air, a podcast from the Air community. The community organizes and coordinates researchers studying all aspects of B and T cell receptor repertoires. The podcast is supported by the Antibody Society. For more information, please go to antibodysociety.org. This podcast has a special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. We will look at how repertoires are currently used in the clinic and also discuss different opportunities where repertoires can be a great addition, the reasons why we are just not quite there yet and how to overcome the obstacles. We are happy that you joined us for this episode of On Air. Welcome to the sixth episode of On Air. The podcast is hosted by Jing Ding and me, I'm Ulrich Stavbo. In the last episode, we discussed how machine learning can link AirSec patterns to diseases and antigen binding. In this episode, we will discuss data storage and annotation, because without it, no machine learning project would ever be successful. Hi, today we are speaking with Brian Corey from Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, Canada. Hello, Brian. Hello there. Brian, you are the technical director for iReceptor Project. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and your journey as in the development of iReceptor and sort of how iReceptor Project and how you became interested in working in the adaptive immune receptor repertoire space? Sure. Yeah. So my name is Brian Corey. I'm from Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada. Um, I com- I'm a computer scientist uh, by training and background. And I think uh, the AirSeq world is, is a pretty classic, uh, large data, complex system type of environment. And so I became really interested in AirSeq data um, probably in around 2014-15 when the Air community started. Um, and I've been involved in the project ever since. Our second guest is Scott Christie from UT Southwestern Texas. Hi, Scott. Hello. Also for you, Scott, what is your background and why do you find uh, AirSeq so interesting? Yes, uh, thank you for the chance to talk today. Um, I'm a, a computer scientist by training as well. Um, but during my uh, PhD, I discovered uh, biology and became really fascinated. Um, that was the time of when all the genomes were coming out and so forth. Um, so my academic track then became very much computational biology, doing data analysis and so forth. Uh, uh, for a while there, I was very much interested in innate immunity, um, you know, bacteria and the microbiome. And then when I joined uh, Dr. Lindsay Cowell's lab here at UT Southwestern Medical Center, I became involved in adaptive immunity. Um, and uh, it's, what can you say? It's an, it's an amazingly fascinating system. It's complex in how it works. Um, and uh, so when I got here, I discovered that there was this new sequencing technology that allowed you to sequence the, the receptors of the adaptive immune system. And there was the need for tools and so forth. Um, so that's essentially what I've been doing um, over the past six years is uh, uh, trying to build up and help build up the ecosystem of analysis tools, uh, data sharing, and um, and so on. So 
I'll leave it there because once I start talking about adaptive immunity, I won't I won't stop because it's, it's it's a really fascinating system. It, it sure is. It sure is. So you're both members of the common um, repository working group of the AI community. What is the aim of this working group? Yeah. So the working group's basically um, goal is to provide what we call the air data commons. Uh, and so we're trying to create a network of distributed repositories. They all rely on the air standards, which I think probably have been talked about in other, uh, other sem uh, seminars on air podcasts. And so we're really interested in making it easy for researchers to find access and reuse air seek data. And what I'll add to that, if I could, is um, a special thing about Uh, the data in the Air Data Commons is that it's already been uh, uh, processed. So it's not raw data like you would get from some archives, but it's been um, processed uh, for quality control and, and annotated. So in many ways, it's almost uh, ready to use for analysis um, without much additional you know, effort or cleaning. Yeah, I like to think of it as value-added data. So there's a lot of value added by the processing that goes on um, through that annotation, and uh, that makes the data really valuable to the end researcher. They have to do much less work to uh, reuse the data effectively. Great. Um, if we can take a step back, Scott, I really liked a word or term that you used, which was the ecosystem. Um, and and so clearly, AirSeq is is a very complex, as you also said. Um, uh, and so for this Air Commons, can you, uh, Scott and Brian, provide some insight into what was the gap that Air Commons was trying to fill in this ecosystem that is needed to um, ultimately be able to translate AirSeq into clinical settings? Yeah, and I would say it's, a little bit more than just the, the data commons. That's an important part, but one of the really key things was the work on developing uh, the standards, the AIR standards. Um, so a common format for um, both the, the sequencing data and its annotations, uh, as well as a lot of the experimental information that that goes along with it how the sequencing was done you know the tissue the patient and so forth um, with those standards in place it suddenly became um, I would say almost obvious that the next thing to do is to start building large databases of this database of this data so that people can query query it um, um, find particular uh, uh, studies or data sets that have particular properties that they're interested in. Um, um, sort of the larger goal there is, uh, you know, because the immune system is such a large, let me, let me I'm going to start over. Um, The, the immune system, the, the space of receptors is so large um, that, at least this is my personal opinion, I've always felt that we were going to need a large amount of 
um, experimentally measured receptors that we see in humans for us to really understand this, this sort of, um, you know, the large space of receptors that the immune system creates. Um, questions like, are there holes in, in there, you know? Um, and we do know that there are some, we do know that there are holes because we have positive and negative selection that, um, you know, remove and, and select the receptors in our, in our body. But what does, how does that happen over different individuals, um, different populations, uh, different diseases? So, so the big broad answer to bring it back is that we really felt we needed to start bringing a lot of this data together um, and that it, that will help drive uh, the, the research going forward. Uh, how, what do you mean uh, holes? I'm not sure I understand the idea of, of holes in the data. So how, how can you expand on this a little bit biologically? How could I understand this as a biologist? Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, for example, with, um, with, With T cells, they go through um, a positive and negative selection process. So the positive selection is that they have to have enough affinity to a, to an MHC receptor, um, and then they pass that. And then negative selection is is that they shouldn't be responding to autoantigens, right? Your yourself. So those receptors get excluded. And they should essentially not be found in your body at all, right? Because they would be. Now, that's what I would call a hole. Those are receptors that are you're not that you're not going to find in your particular repertoire. You may find them in other people's repertoire, though, right? Um, you know. Now, why is that? Is would that just be purely because the MHC is different between people? Um, I think. That seems like a reasonable thing, but I think there's other hypotheses, like maybe certain diseases, um, certainly certain type of autoimmune diseases, maybe either um, create additional holes, making you susceptible possibly to other things, um, or it could be the other way. They, they fill holes, <laughs> right? They let too many receptors through and the holes that you should have um, so yeah that's that's sort of my analogy I think maybe there's another sort of more accurate biological way to say it but that's how I uh, that's how I think of it well, it's also very nice and very visual I think holes in, in, in data sets I was just going to add in terms of in terms of gaps I mean one of the thing one of the motivations that we've always had for um, kind of building the air data commons is to really, it, it's to fill a gap. Um, you know, researchers quite often have a study that they've done. They've got a relatively small number of subjects, a small number of samples. And when they need to con compare and contrast that data to kind of prove or disprove or support a, a scientific hypothesis, um, it's really been challenging over the past five, 10 years. It's been really challenging to find data that is reusable for that purpose. So the Air Data Commons kind of fills that gap. It helps researchers find data so that they can uh, basically uh, answer those questions that Scott was talking about, you know, fill those gaps, um, determine whether maybe that receptor is missing in one person but not in other people. So those kind of questions become much, much easier if you have a set of repositories that you can query 
um, using a, a consistent uh, query mechanism, which is the Air Data Commons API. I think what I find most daunting trying to navigate uh, the AirSeq world is, you know, um, the amount of choices of how to even begin. And so I really appreciate these uh, sort of these air standards and these repositories trying to aggregate a lot of the information out there. Um, but even then, um, can you both speak about sort of what is what what initiated you to generate iReceptor versus VDJ server um, and give some use cases for them for someone who's just starting out? Yeah, I mean, for, for iReceptor, um, our goal was to essentially, like, like you say, we have lots of repositories out there. There's lots of places to find data. And so our goal with iReceptor was really to make it easy for the user to find data of interest. Um, so the iReceptor platform is basically two things. There's a repository software stack that we've developed um, that allows researchers to download the software and run their own repository as part of the Air Data Commons. But kind of the more user-facing thing is the iReceptor Gateway. So the iReceptor Gateway is a basically a, a web portal that queries the Air Data Commons. Uh, and so it basically hides the complexity from the user so that they can basically uh, search all of the all of the data and all of the repositories, essentially with a single query um, from a from a web portal user interface that makes it easy. Yeah, I, I think it's useful to to add in a little bit of history there too. Um, you know, when the iReceptor project started, and um, Brian, I, I think maybe you were there right there in in the beginning. You guys had devised your own API for doing queries. Um, um, I kind of remember a little bit of that old API and we over at VDJ server, we were kind of the first people who tried, you know, implementing it. <clears throat> and we had an initial system, you know, to, to query the data. Um, and then that, that evolved into uh, the air data commons, um, which kind of took that, um, that simpler API that was initially implemented and sort of made it a more full-featured query language, um, as well as uh, I think we, I'm not sure how we did metadata back then, if if we did it all. I don't remember, honestly. <laughs> um, yeah, we had, we, had, we, had, we had the basics, the early basics. Right, you had the basics, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think that's an important part because it, the, this project had been, has been going for quite a while um, and trying to get some traction uh, and get other repositories and people. And I think once we kind of, once it went a little bit more on the standards route, we, we got a lot, we got a lot of, uh, um, you know, more contributions and more people involved. And I think that, that, that really pushed it forward. So you, you mentioned metadata that you may not have had metadata in the beginning. So, I guess the metadata comes from from the um, from the Maya standards now, um, and before you, it was just a collection of sequences, or what was it before? And and um, maybe more importantly, how does all this metadata help you find what you're looking for? Yeah, I mean, as Scott said, in, in the early days, we kind of came together and we kind of. Um, brainstormed what 
data, um, data about the data, which is what metadata is. Um, so the error standards, the Meyer standard is basically uh, metadata about um, how studies are run. And so you have data about the subjects in the study, uh, the samples in the study, how the samples were prepared for sequencing, how the uh, samples were sequenced. So that's metadata about the data. And then the actual error-seq data is those annotated sequences that are actually sequenced. But that metadata is probably, I don't know, I, you could argue maybe that it's as, as important, if not more important, than the sequence data itself. Because if you don't know what disease state a sample came from, you really have no ability to make a decision about whether that's interesting data for you as a researcher who's trying to understand what those sequences mean and those annotations mean. And so that metadata was critical and kind of we started our project around the same time the AIR community started. And so it was very, very natural for us to basically adopt the AIR standards as they evolved. And of course, we got very involved in the AIR community as part of that to help develop those standards. I guess as a follow-up question, um, what what's the initiative of researchers to deposit and to follow all of these guidelines of generating data in your standards and then inputting all of that metadata of the data? Glory and fame. Yeah. Okay. That's it. <laughs> Glory and fame for every researcher and a, and a big pile of gold, too. Um, <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's, let's be honest, it's always been hard to get researchers to take that, that final step, um, and take the data from their publication and, and make it available in an easy to use form. Um, we, we knew this going in, um, because many other communities have, have, you know, struggled with that, um, and I don't think we've we've solved it so much, but what we've done is we've put together uh, a number of software pieces, um, including, for example, the iReceptor Turnkey, where you can run your own repository, or um, VDJ Server's public portal, where you can, you know, publish your data there. Um, between those options, I think we've we've lowered the the bar for people to do that. Um, now you just kind of, you know, have to make them aware, <laughs> um, convince them that that's the right thing to do. Um, you know, but, but you always run into the various challenges around data, um, including, you know, can it be de-identified, um, institutions have their own sort of worries about, well, we don't want to give data out if it has too much identifying information um, and even researchers themselves, you know, feel like, oh, we, we don't really want to release the data until we feel we, um, we've gotten everything we can out of it. <laughs> right. Um, um, but uh, besides all that, I think, you know, we have been able to convince, you know, quite a few people to contribute. Yeah. Now, one, one, one of the things that, that I've, um, that we've experienced over the last uh, two years, um, two and a half years, the COVID years, is uh, I think a, a, a vision of maybe way, the way data sharing can be and hopefully should be. 
Um, through COVID, we basically, um, I think between our groups, we've curated on the order of probably 25 COVID-19 studies and their associated uh, AirSeq data. And this was done in a very proactive way in collaboration with researchers because researchers uh, value the data so much, right? They knew their data was going to be valuable um, and they've therefore worked with our groups to help publish that data. And so that was a very collaborative process um, and it made the curation of the data and repositories quite, quite simple and straightforward, relatively speaking to how it normally is if you have to curate a study from somebody else's group. And so that the way COVID evolved from a data sharing perspective, um, I think from my perspective would be, I hope that's the way it is moving forward. Um, I'm not sure that that uh, momentum will be maintained, but I think that's the vision of kind of how we see things, how they should be, I suppose. So, so you essentially have what four reasons or, or motivations for researchers to share the data. One is that they're clearly valuable for other researchers. Um, one is, or maybe it was obstacles. Um, what did you say, Scott? I forgot. I'm sorry. <laughs> you said, I want to have, one thing stuck in my mind is glory and fame and glory. And <laughs> gold. <laughs> yeah, gold. Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, from, from a glory perspective, I think one of the things we saw, again, just go back to COVID, with, from a glory perspective, the early researchers who published the, some of the first COVID-19 data sets were very, very heavily cited. And so from a glory perspective, from an academic perspective, um, citations are, are gold. And uh, I think that happened from a, from a COVID perspective. Um, so, you know, I think there's, there's, some, there's some, uh, some mileage there from the, from the and, and, and I, I don't know, glory too, I guess. Um, you know, I think there's, the, you know, those people that work so hard to get that COVID data early, they did some really, really good, early, important work. And I think there's some, you know, there's some some glory there as well, I suppose. You expressed concern that um, that this momentum will probably not last. So how, what can one think to make these things last? So how do you get people to not just share the data, because these people are somehow forced to sometimes in, in, in various journals, but also to annotate the data properly so it's actually useful for other people? which I think might be the biggest problem. So, so just a quick comment on the momentum. I mean, I, I think, I think um, the, the culture of valuing data, scientific data, and, and its value to the scientific community probably isn't where it is, where it needs to be today. Um, and I think that is the biggest hope to just keep fundamental momentum going, right? That you have... Um, you're rewarded by publishing your data. Um, you're not just rewarded by publishing a paper. Um, and so I think there's some some reward um, issues that you know, kind of from a scientific community perspective. I think Scott's probably the best person to talk about um, how to encourage people to um, share data well, I guess, which is a big challenge, I think. Yeah, yeah. You're, I mean, annotation is, and doing good annotation and complete annotation um, is, is always a challenge, right? Um, 
so the the Meyer standard is much broader and larger um, when you compare, for example, to a, an archive like SRA or ENA, where the the information that you're required to provide about the sample and the experimental um, is really just a few fields. Um, Meyer is much more expansive. Um, you know, we're talking. You know, hundreds of hundred of fields, hundred fields or so. Um, now the 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 trick really is just the same old trick that any computer science scientist would do, which is to provide good data entry screens. <laughs> um, you know, uh, useful tools to sort of help them record that information and. Um, you know, then you just kind of have to encourage them to do that. Now, encouragement, there's lots of ways to do encouragement, right? Uh, one of the best examples is the air community itself. Just people being involved in air community makes them aware of these standards, of, of my air, of the efforts going on. And you would hope that when any of them, you know, start working on their own data and thinking about publishing that, you know, air C comes to their mind. Oh yes, we should, we should do that too. Um, because we know it's, it's, it's very useful. Um, the, the, the other challenge is there's a lot of researchers who do immune repertoire sequencing, but aren't in the air C community. Um, so you need to do outreach to them. Um, now, you know, outreach could be is like, you know, if a lot of other papers are doing the same thing, they should be, you know, sharing their data and, and providing a session numbers and identifiers to say, oh, here's how you can get the data for our study over here in the Air Data Commons. If we start seeing more of that, then researchers will kind of, you know, start recognizing that's a norm, you know, and follow it. So, but... Honestly, this is a struggle that I think the ARC community has been, um, you know, ever since they started talking about the Meyer standard, there's been discussions on how do we get researchers to follow it? Do we, do we try to get journals to enforce it for us? Um, um, that has often been a, a catch-22 problem, meaning the journals say, well, it needs to be a big enough standard for us to enforce it. Right. We need more people adhering to it. <laughs> right. And so, well, but in order to get more people to adhere to it, you need to, to have somebody enforce. It. So, um, um, you know, so I think we'll we'll get there someday. And I think exposure like in this, this podcast and many other ways, um, you know, help to get help get the word out. Um, and, and I'll say, you know, even though the Air Data Commons is an international effort, um, you know, funding agencies like the NIH, uh, you know, they've been thinking for quite a while on, on the same thing. How do we get researchers to share more data? Um, you know, but there's always challenges there because there's sometimes intellectual property involved, um, you know, researchers, especially, right, you know that antibody researchers by pharma companies is big business, um, um, so they're, they're kind of cautious on 
accidentally giving away <laughs> right their next big their next big product. Um, and researchers who are working in particular diseases, you know, if they find something interesting, if they find an interesting receptor or a set of receptors or a clone or something like that, you know, they they know that there's a potential for commercial. Um, so this this is a this is a, a challenge, right? You know, you don't want you don't want all the throwaway data. Uh, you know, I put that in words, quotes, right? You know, this data is no useful, so we'll throw it in the, <laughs> we'll throw it in the comments. You know, that that that's sort of a bad way to go. Um, you know, so it may be that's going to take a while for a researcher to really say, okay, I think I've gotten everything I can out of this data, and now I'm willing to share it. Um, um, but I think, you know, over time we will, you know, we will get more of that. Um, at least I'm hopeful. Um, when you were building this, these systems and the Air Data Commons, you've both of you have spoken about you know challenges of getting good annotations, incentivizing the deposit of data, harmonizing um, uh, the processes, the methodology, and and um, and whatnot. Are there other challenges that we haven't spoken of? Sustainability. I think that's one of the biggest challenges, right? Maintaining and running large databases um, isn't free, right? Um, and uh, you know, most of your funding is is focused on advancing science, which it should be, and making new scientific discoveries, and you know, less about maintaining the the data infrastructure. Um, you know, and the computers and the databases and so forth. So, um, you know, so that's always a challenge is you, is you can build these systems and then with, when funding runs out, they, they you know, um, they can falter and, uh, uh, you know, not be usable anymore or become, you know, become discontinued or, or old or break down and, um, so that's, you know, that's what I, the, to me, that's one of the, the, the biggest challenges. Um, I don't really think, I think that's more challenging than building the system in the first place, right? Um, you know, because you, you can come up with, you can use a good computer science techniques to, to design the system, make it scalable, make it work well for users. Um, but then you have to keep it running for a long time you know, in the scientific world in order to make an impact that needs to be around for a while. Um, um, so I, to, to me, that's one of the biggest challenges. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. And I think, um, you know, the the model that we have, that we've taken in the air community, and it's I think it's there's still a big question mark about, um, you know, whether this model is, 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 is the best one. But we, we've gone with this kind of distributed data model um, in the sense that so, so these data sets are so large um, and there are so many of them that it doesn't make it. Do, it's not really practical to have all of this process data in one place. And so the Air Data Commons is a distributed data system. We have repositories um, and we have repositories all over the world today. We have repositories in South Africa. We have repositories in Germany. We have in the U.S. and Canada at the moment. So this is truly an international initiative at the moment. Um, and and it's, it is starting to take off. 
Um, but one of the goals with this distributed system is that these repositories are run by institutions um, that have long lives in themselves. Um, and so that's one of the kind of kind of the visions is that these databases are distributed. Um, and sometimes you sometimes some repositories might go away, but because the air community is a community, the standards will continue. Uh, regardless of whether an individual organization or system is there. And this, the, the standards will evolve and hopefully the re repositories will re um, evolve as well. And um, as Scott said, sustainability of all of the work that goes into some of the work that we've already done is, is certainly a challenge. Um, but that vision of having a, essentially a uh, an interface to query data is the fundamental thing that makes the Air Data Commons work. Um, and then you have a bunch of repositories that adhere to that query mechanism. And, um, and that's uh, the kind of fundamental basis of, of, of how it all works. And iReceptor and VDJ Server utilize those APIs to do different things on behalf of the user. And that's only possible because we have these uh, APIs, the Air Data Commons API that makes it Make, makes these repositories queryable. So if I understand correctly then, Brian, so in the iReceptor, um, one repository repository might go offline, it be turned off, and then the data would just disappear or would they be moved on to some other repository? Um, it, 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 would, it would truly depend. Um, I think most funding agencies, um, when you, you know, people, researchers are supposed to have data management plans around how, what they do with their data. Um, and so, so one of the things that maybe, maybe is worth noting. So this is, um, this is process data. So the, the fundamental data that is the foundation, the actual raw sequence data is typically stored in uh, a long running repository like SRA. Uh, NCBI and SRA or ENA in in, uh, uh, in Europe, and so the sequences are always there. What's what the Air Data Commons contains is this what I called the value add earlier, right? So it's value added data that is makes it easy for researchers to do kind of their science scientific discovery using the data. So the raw data will always be there. The process data may come and go, um, and so that's really important because the the fundamental data is always there. Um, and whether the process data is there or you need to reproduce it, one of the things the AIR standard is all about is making it so that you can take that raw data and reproduce the annotated data if you need to. Um, so that, that from a scientific reproducibility, that's really important. But aren't you missing a lot of metadata on the SRA? I understand, I, my understanding is that the um, AIR standard is, is more extensive than, yes. than yes. what's required. Yeah, yeah. If, if, if you lose the Air Data Commons, in particular the metadata, um, you lose a, an enormous amount of value for sure. Yeah, and um, I'll add to that one, um, it's not an ongoing effort, but it, it, it might be sort of, um, you know, down the road is that once we start having a lot of studies um, with the complete MyAir um, annotation in the Air Data Commons, is we can push those that that metadata um, back into the the these core archives like SRA and ENA. 
So they have the ability to store that that metadata um, in sort of a generic way. It's just, well, one, people don't submit it. <laughs> um, you know, though there are, as part of the, the AIR standards, there are some spreadsheets that you can use for doing SRA submission, for example. And those spreadsheets um, have all of the MyAIR fields. So if you were to do an SRA submission where you use those spreadsheets, filled in all the information, um, technically your study in SRA would be very much MyAIR compliant and we could you know, pull all that information out later. So, um, so there is a mechanism there to where we can think about taking everything we've been collecting so far in, in the data commons and, and push it back in the SRA so that we truly get, um, you know, at any time we could, we could try to reproduce, uh, um, you know, if a repository goes down, we could just start from the raw data and reproduce all the data and um, you know, bring, up a, uh, bring up a different repository to replace it. And, fun and funders quite often ask for that um, in, in the sense that, um, you know, if, if you if you like the NIH, for example, uh, when you're submitting a proposal, you have to describe what you do when your data gets sunset, um, which, which means that it's no longer active research data, uh, in air quotes, so to speak, that people might be um, working with actively but it's archived in a form that is standards compliant. Uh, and so you have the air metadata archived. It's not, it's not in an active repository that you can query like it is in the Air Data Commons, but it's archived somewhere. And so funding agencies are starting to push in that direction. Um, and the air standards, again, make that relatively simple to do. So, so you mentioned SRA. Um, for storage of, of the of the raw data, so that's hardly an alternative to uh, the VGJ server or the the R receptor. But are there any alternatives then to real alternatives to 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 what you've produced, the two of you? I don't I don't think so. Um, I mean, unless you were about to say yes, Brian, but <laughs> I don't <laughs> well, I don't think so. I feel like what we've built is is fairly unique in. Um, in the genomic science sciences. So there are certainly many sort of websites where you can go and, and search uh, studies. Um, you know, there's the, like the cancer, um, uh, uh, there's sort of the cancer website where you can search over the whole um, TCGA, the, the cancer genome atlas and, and so forth. Um, what you'll find at almost all of those of those other sort of places is that the only thing you can do is search over the metadata. You can't search over sequences themselves and the annotations on the sequences. Um, invariably what you do at those websites, is you search over study metadata and then you download, um, you know, large data files and then it's up to you to do whatever you want with them. Um, I think that's what really makes this unique is that you can search for a specific receptor in the data commons. You can say, I want, is there a receptor of this gene, this V gene, this J gene with this CDR3 um, sequence? Uh, 
And you don't even need to have the exact sequence. You can provide sort of a, a substring of the CDR3 and look for, um, you know, it's not a true what, like what we'd call a motif search, um, but it's still pretty powerful to search for, you know, substrings of the CDR3. So I think that's, and, and you know, that's something that we, um, the common repository working group, knew that that's what everybody wanted to do. <laughs> they wanted to be able to go to a website, type in a CDR3 and say, has this ever been seen before? And, you know, in what patients and under what condition and so forth. And I think really that's, um, we've succeeded at that quite, quite brilliantly. <laughs> you know, I, I believe we've done a, a great job at doing that and people are using it, you know, all the time. Yeah, I'd just add to that, uh, you know, I mean, I think there's various levels of repositories going from SRA, which is kind of raw sequence data, very little metadata, through to other repositories and websites and things like that, where some sequence data, maybe with some annotations, are stored, but not standards compliant, through to some repositories that, um, you know, I would describe as air compliant, because the data in them is stored as they're compliant with the sequences and their annotations and metadata, but it's not queryable. So it's not part of the Air Data Commons, but as Scott said, you could go download an entire study and take it offline and do something with it. Um, and so there's, I think there's a, there, there's a spectrum there, um, but I don't think there's anything else that, as Scott was saying, I mean, I, I quite often think of the Air Data Commons and, and the iReceptor Gateway as um, kind of an interactive um, data exploration platform, right? So it's, it's, you're really kind of poking at data and trying to find things of interest from a researcher's perspective. And that kind of query mechanism where you're doing data discovery, um, I think is pretty unique from a perspective of how deep you can go into the data in terms of going all the way down to the sequence level, as well as the kind of the broad, Meyer standard metadata that, you know, there's 80 fields that would describe how a sample was actually collected. Um, so I think it's very broad in terms of the metadata, but it's very deep in terms of the sequence data. And I think that's pretty unique. So we have a few minutes left and I'd really like to hear what's next or what are the next goals um, or functionalities of Air Data Commons in the iReceptor Gateway? Well, I think one of the really exciting things, um, so over the last year and a bit, uh, the AIR community, the standards group, and the Common Repository Working Group uh, have been working on single cell and gene expression extensions to the AIR standards. Um, and so the AIR community meeting was in La Jolla um, last month, and the kind of next version of the AIR standard was announced, essentially. It's not quite out yet, but it will be very, very soon. And that has the ability to, that has kind of objects to describe single cells um, and their paired receptors, as well as gene expression data. And by doing that, that means that essentially um, the way I think of it is that would flow will flow into the repository. So data in the Air Data Commons will have single cell with gene expression data um, in the not too distant future, and I think that's a pretty exciting uh, area for a lot of people. Um, so that's that's one of the big the big new things, and we expect to be releasing kind of the iReceptor platform. We'll be supporting that uh, 
probably in the next month or two. Yeah, I don't really have much to add. I think that's, um, yeah, I, I agree. That's that's one of the next big things. It's, I mean, single cell studies are really starting to take off now. Um, and doing that together with the gene expression um, is, is, I mean, it, it, it's another, it's another um, you know, measurement of, of the immune system there at the same time, but also of, you know, the, the tissue that's uh, a particular tissue or something or, or the disease or the tumor. Um, so I think it's going to be pretty powerful when we have a lot of that data together. So I lied. I have one more question. <laughs> uh, I mean, f right, these BCRs and TCR sequences or the receptors themselves, they, you know, the beauty of them is they recognize a specific antigen. And so is there uh, future plans to try to try to tie in these receptor sequences, motifs with a antigen or predicted antigen or epitope? Um, and, and kind of tying it, I mean, I'm only familiar with IEDB, but, it, you know, if there's other ways of, you know, kind of closing that full loop of finding sequences that are relevant for a specific disease or biological function, but then understanding what's actually driving that expansion of those or the development of those receptors. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. I mean, that's our, um, um, we've been talking and I say we as um, <clears throat> a VDJ server and the iReceptor team have been talking with, <clears throat> we've been talking with IEDB about how to do better data integration and how to do cross-site queries, um, how to have a common data standard between the data, between the two sites so that, you know, um, the same queries work, or if you download the data, um, you could download it, um, together. So, um, I think that's one of the first steps to sort of help, help researchers, um, you know, sort of make the, those connections in the data. Um, the, the other part of though is, is, you know, getting, that type of data, um, you know, submitted and put into these systems as well. So um, IEDB has, um, over the years, have been able to, you know, do a lot of the curation themselves, right? They go through a lot of papers, they find epitopes, and then they, they curate all that. Um, and they are now starting to also curate the receptors, if there's a, the, if the receptor's known, in that study, they added in. So there's a pretty obvious link there. Um, really, what it what it requires is just some some effort uh, of the groups to get together. Um, and IEDB is involved in the ARC community, so I don't you know want to make it sound like they aren't. Um, they are involved, and they're very much aware of the work that we're doing. And um, so. You know, I expect in the future that there'll be much, much closer integration as we go forward. Yeah, just just to add to that, I mean, I, I so it, it, from an iReceptor perspective, um, you know, iReceptor originally and still is today, um, but I anticipate in the near near future, um, 
it, it's it's more it's it's not just an ADC or Data Commons interface. It's kind of an immunology tool, and so there are lots of resources like IEDB that can be queried, just like the Air Data Commons can be queried. And as Scott implied, it's it's really important that these links be made in a really consistent and standards based way. And so we've been talking to the IDB group um, about how to do that. They have a query API against IDB. Um, we have a query um, API against their data commons. And today the iReceptor has a basic integration so that you can query, if you query a CDR3 on the, in the air data commons, it will actually query the CDR3 in IEDB and see if it finds any epitope specificity. Um, so that's a very, very simple but very, very potentially very powerful um, integration. And we don't reproduce everything that IEDB has. We just say, hey, we found something in IEDB. You should go over there and look at it if you're really interested. Um, and so it's 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 about making connections um, across these platforms that I think is is I think moving forward is going to be really really powerful. Thank you, Brian and Scott, for talking with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We will return in one month's time with more thoughts on the clinical use of air sequencing. And before we go, we'd like to draw your attention to the iReceptor Plus seminar series in July, where uh, Ning Jiang from University of Pennsylvania in USA is uh, presenting. All links and contact information and such are in the show notes. This podcast is edited by Abdulaziz of the always funny podcast Spout Law. Go there and have a listen. Thank you for listening to On Air. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, here we are at the end of the sixth episode of On Air, the podcast of the AIR community with special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. Except I think in this particular episode where we discussed data sharing and annotation. The podcast is supported by the Antibody Society, which aims to bring together everyone working with antibodies and in related fields. You can find more information about the society on the website, antibodiesociety.org. If you have any comments or questions, drop us a line at onair at air-community.org or tweet us using the hashtag on air, and that's with two R's. Thank you.